way that is, helps us to just answer the question, how shall we then live? So we've looked at the last days, the apostasy, the abomination of desolation. We've looked at the great tribulation where Israel is protected and martyrdom of untold numbers of believers takes place. We've considered the signs in the heavens and on the earth that precede the literal and visible return of Jesus, who will raise the bodies of the dead in Christ and change the bodies of those living believers who endure to the end, and then gather us together in the air and bring us to Is- uh, with Israel to Jerusalem. There he will restore the kingdom to Israel and sit on the throne of his father David to rule over Israel and all the nations of the earth. We've also considered the more difficult and unclear aspects like the two witnesses, the two beasts, the, the, the beast and the little beast, which is the false messiah and the false prophet. And then we concluded by looking at the woman Babylon, the city of humans versus the city of God that is ultimately destroyed by that beast. So today what I want to do is look at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the Bride. We're going to do that from Revelation. I know the bulletin says verse 7, but it's really Revelation 19 verses 5 to 10. Now, after the destruction of Babylon and the praise breaks out in heaven, then we hear these words. And a voice from the throne came out saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard something like the voice of the great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren, who hold the testimony of Jesus, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what he sees is there's rejoicing in heaven when the woman Babylon is destroyed and the cities of mankind are destroyed. And then a voice cries out to tell all who fear God to uh, praise. And so there is rejoicing uh, over the name of God. And he sees, he hears this multitude that he describes as many waters. That's all of the peoples of the earth. Uh, that sound like thunder saying hallelujah and the marriage of the lamb has now come. Now notice he says that the bride has made herself ready. And I want you to notice she's dressed in fine linen that is described as the righteous acts of the saints. This is quite a contrast from the great harlot who was dressed in purple with jewels and, and all of this stuff that was part of human glorification. Here we have the linen 
that is described as the righteous acts of the saints. I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to talk about that. And and the one who is talking to John says, "You, I want you to write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, to understand this, we need to understand two cultural contexts. The first one is the idea of the king's son receiving a kingdom. And the second one is the two parts of a biblical marriage. Now, for you, the Disciple Center, this will not be that difficult because you guys are familiar with the betrothal and the receiving of the bride, but a lot of people aren't, so I want to include it here. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for a king to expand his kingdom by conquering his enemies and then enthroning his son over those peoples. And this could happen either either as an extension of the father's kingdom, where the father extended the kingdom and then gave all of it to his son, or where his son had a kingdom alongside the father's. Uh, And this is connected to several passages that we need to be familiar with uh, in the scriptures. And you guys know these because you've heard them a lot. But I want you to see where they come from. It's Psalm 110. So if you will, turn to Psalm 110 with me. Verses 1 to 7. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your power, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord uh, has sworn and will not change his mind, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses and will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside and he will lift up his head. Now, this text is saying that this one, this The one whom the Lord calls Lord, which is a fascinating text that David here writes, uh, that Jesus is both a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the earthly priesthood is the priesthood of the Levites, the heavenly tabernacle is the order of Melchizedek, an unchanging priesthood. Jesus didn't enter into the tabernacle on earth or the temple on earth, but into heaven itself when he made full atonement. So he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he was born on earth from the tribe of Judah in the line of David, and therefore he will be a king who will rule, his scepter will be from Zion. You got this? Priest in the heavens and a king on the earth. In his ascension, this text is quoted to him. Sit now at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, he's going to receive a kingdom. He's sitting with his father in his father's throne now. 
but he will sit on the throne of his earthly father, the King David, uh, when he comes back to earth. So the ascension to the throne and the celebration of the wedding are connected because what usually happens is uh, a bride is also given to the, the son when he has his kingdom. So this relates to the custom of betrothal and the wedding supper. When the bride is chosen, the couple engages in a ceremony of betrothal. And the groom will say to her, be betrothed to me according to the Torah of Moses. And he gives her an item of value. Uh, there is also a written document called a ketubah, which establishes her inheritance as his bride. Now, we see that in the Bride of Christ, in that he has uh, betrothed, we are betrothed to him, we'll see the text in a little bit, and he has given us something of value, the Spirit of God, as the earnest of our inheritance, and we are awaiting the time when he will come back to receive us. So this couple, when they're betrothed, does not engage in cohabitation or in sexual relationships, that ultimate intimacy, but they are still considered married, and this can only be broken by death or divorce. So this was Mary and Joseph. You know they were betrothed, not engaged. And that betrothal meant that they were husband and wife, even though they were not living together. And so when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, he thinks she's been unfaithful and he's going to divorce her because he's a righteous man. But the angel will tell him that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit, and so you are to take her tonight. And the scripture specifically says he brought her into his home, but he kept her a virgin until she brought forth the firstborn. Now, during this betrothal period, the bridegroom goes to prepare a place for them to be together, and the bride returns to her father's house to prepare herself. Now, usually this would be a year or even longer. And then the bridegroom would return and receive the bride, and there would be a celebration, a marriage feast or a marriage supper that might take as long as a week while they celebrated and rejoiced over the couple now coming together. They were already married, but now they are together permanently. Now, the bride of Messiah is made up of Israel, and those from the nations who have joined themselves to the God of Israel and the Israel of God by faith in the Messiah. And according to Ephesians, God has made both of them, Israel and the nations, into one new humanity as the bride which he will present to himself without spot and wrinkle. And so the book of Ephesians gives an enormous amount of this. Even when it talks about our roles as husbands and wives, he says, I'm speaking also of Christ and his bride. Uh, and But nevertheless, you are to do this as well with your own brides. So when Jesus returns to receive a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and to rule over the nations, there will be a marriage supper. And as we saw in the text that we began in Revelation 19, that is mentioned, but we're not given a full description. We're not given a lot of detail there. 
Now, some theologians believe that the marriage supper takes place in the new creation and in the new heaven and earth because the new Jerusalem is described in that context. So I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation 21, and I want you to see the verse that they're talking about. Revelation 21. This is after Revelation 20, where there is that thousand-year kingdom period, and then heaven and earth passes away. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice among the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and he himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They will no longer be any death, and they will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write. For these words are faithful and true. Now, this seems fairly plain. And in the next two chapters of 21 and 22, um, the city and the eternal state of the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem are described in more detail. Now, generally, those who take this as the wedding supper do this because they hold an amillennial view of eschatology and therefore deny the kingdom being restored to Israel with Jesus sitting on the throne of David as all the prophets prophesied would happen. So this interpretation that the marriage supper of the Lamb will be in the new creation is a little problematic for those of us who see a complete fulfillment of all the promises to Israel prior to the fullness of the new creation. Now, of course, there's room for disagreement, and we see these things through a darkened mirror, but I believe there is an overlap between the full completion of the promises of God made to Abraham and the expressed uh, of those promises, the expression of those promises through Israel that will be completed through the new covenant and the gospel and the new creation with a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and a new humanity. Now, what I mean by this overlap is that in the same way that now the kingdom of God is among us, and yet it's not yet in fullness, so the new creation is now and not yet. The scripture says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So there it is. Our born-again experience puts us in the new creation. But here's the problem. I still got the same mind that has to be transformed. And I still have the body that needs to be resurrected or changed at the, at the resurrection. So it's really important to understand that the overlap of these things will be at its strongest during the Messianic Kingdom or that thousand-year reign. So I believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place during that kingdom period. And that is why we do a marriage supper form of the Passover and the communion as part of our kingdom service during Sukkot.
Now, with that in mind, I want to look real briefly at two parables that you know real well, so I don't have to go into them in great detail. But the first one is in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. The scripture says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So here we have this imagery of the wedding supper for the son of the king in that context. And he says he sent out his slaves to those who had been invited to the wedding feast, but they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And he says, Some of them seized the slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Now, we know what's going on here. He's talking about... Israel in the context of sending the prophets and sending those who would come and and they generally rejected those prophets. So the king was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murders and set their city on fire. Some see in this a, a tie-in to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Now, I want to be really careful here. Replacement theology would say that when they go out this time, they're not inviting the ones that were invited before. But that's not true. Remember, the gospel is to the Jew first. So they go out in the streets and gathered whoever they found, good and evil, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. There will be those from Israel who will come in, those from the nations who will come in, and they are all there for the, the with the guests. But the king came in, verse 11, to look over the dinner guests, and he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and throw him into outer darkness, in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of chief. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I want you to understand the context here. The gospel call is not simply a call to come and have dinner, come and get the kingdom. It's a call to repentance and a struggle towards obedience. The bride, the scripture says, has made herself ready. How has she made herself ready? Having been called to God to be the bride in response to the love that's been given to her and the grace that's been given to her, she has struggled to dress in the linen of righteous obedience. Not to save her, not but to dress her. And that's what Ephesians says. By grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we should walk into the good deeds that he has foreordained that we should walk in them. 
In other words, our obedience is also his grace working in us. For God is in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So this one who is thrown out is the one who's got the, oh, I believe, I accept it, I'm not going to change my life, and I'll just come as I am. You can come to Jesus just as you are. That's the hymn we sing. But you don't stay just as you are. If you stay just as you are, you haven't really come to him. Now, I'm not talking about a work salvation. I'm talking about a works of gratitude and thanksgiving that happens in that context. Because we are in the place now where, as the bride, we are preparing ourselves. He's preparing a place for us in the kingdom, and we're preparing ourselves to be ready. So I want you to turn with me to a, another passage, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says to the Corinthians, a predominantly Gentile, but some Jews in the, in the mix, he says, I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness. Indeed, you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that this, as the serpent beguiled Eve by the, his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Messiah. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you will bear with that. You will take it. So what Paul's saying is, look, I as a father, have betrothed you to Christ. And I want to present you appropriately, and that means dressed in the fine linen of a struggle of obedience towards him. We are preparing ourselves for the kingdom to come and the marriage supper that we will be in there. Now, we're not doing it alone. We have the Spirit of God. We have the good news of the gospel. And we have the Word of God that we might grow in grace and in knowledge, not only individually, but together, as Ephesians uh, over and over talks about. So, in this series, I've tried to give you the major themes of these events. And I've warned you that two threats exist. One is the threat of assimilation, which if we resist, and that's what we're supposed to do, it will, it will re uh, return to us persecution. But there's another threat that I think is very present among American Christians and Jews today, and that's a lack of preparation. And that parable is in Matthew 25. And so I'm going to conclude with that, with that one. Matthew 25. You know this one well, and I think in the context here, you'll see that it's about a wedding supper. The kingdom of heaven will be accomplished or comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps. These are the ones invited to the wedding supper. And they, uh, who are, they are supposed to meet the bridegroom when he comes, lighting their lamps, being a light. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. 
Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Scripture warns us to stay awake and not to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout saying, come, give us some. uh, uh, There was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. And the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. And the prudent said, no, because there will not be enough for us and you. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourself. And while they were going to make purchases, while they were finally getting prepared, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he said, I do not know you. So be on the alert for you do not know the day or the hour. Now, it's really important. This is a well-known story, and we need to see it in its context of a wedding supper. Those who were prepared were prepared in case there was a delay until the bridegroom would come. And those who were not prepared didn't have time to prepare at the last minute. We can't say, well, when it looks like we're right near the end and the tribulation's about to happen, we'll get ready. We need to be prepared now, and we need to prepare our children, for the Lord is coming back. And he's told us that the time before will be challenging and perilous. And he's warned us to be on the alert, to be awake, and to watch. And he's told us to be prepared. The preparation is to maintain the faith in the Lord and to keep the commandments of God, maintaining our our faith in the testimony of the Lord Jesus and keeping the commandments of God, not to save us, but to dress us in preparation. Our salvation is by grace through faith, but our clothing is the obedience to God. So with this in mind, I'm going to turn next week to a short series on how shall we now live, practical steps that we can make in our homes and in our lives to strengthen our faith and to be a people of righteous acts as the darkness approaches. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do Q&A.